from digitiki.com. They don't advertise for killers in a newspaper. That was my profession. Ex-cop. Ex-blade runner. Ex-killer. Welcome to the Quiet Village. You are listening to uh, Vangelis, one of my favorite electronic composers from, of course, I'm sure anybody who has ever gone to a movie knows Blade Runner. And this is the soundtrack from Blade Runner. And we were just talking about, and that's why I kind of opened with it a little bit here. It's um, this track in particular, but the film itself is very film noir-esque, even though it's sci-fi set in the future yeah, but how many Twilight Zone episodes can you say the same thing about? Exactly, and the costumes are all, and the architecture is very. Uh, well, the architecture is the Bradbury Building, yes. Which is, you talk about if any one single structure is the mainstay of Los Angeles film noir, it's the Bradbury Building. Yes. I, I was just there with my my friend John Noe, who's a, a film noir buff. He's I would even go so far as to say a scholar. And also a disc jockey in um, in Seattle. He wanted to see the Bradbury Building and Angel's Flight. They're within a block of each other. And you you walk into the Bradbury Building. You can only go in as far as the lobby, but you look up and you go, Blade Runner. Yeah, <laughs> it's like unmistakable. You know, yeah. it's uh, it's like walking into the Maverick Bar in Tucson, Arizona, and going, Yep, this is where Borat sang "Throw the Jew Down the Well." There's no <laughs> <laughs> or this is actually the most thrilling I, I walked in a friend of mine was renting this little portion of a firehouse in downtown LA mm-hmm. because in the toy district I was like wait a minute this is no no yes this is the Ghostbusters fire station. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> so every now and then you walk into these places and there's no mistaking uh-huh. where you are and you really feel, there's the pole, you know. L- L.A. figures very heavily in film noir. The city is almost a character in a lot. Oh, I would say it is very much a character in a great many of these movies because... Uh, for like the, not canning Carol John Daly, who's like the first quote hard boiled writer, but 
Hammett is the first one of, of real prominence. And he's in San Francisco, and San Francisco never really takes root. Then comes Chandler. And along with Chandler, there's also Earl Stanley Gardner. And you'll notice the, the pattern is great activity slash violence, introspection usually in the car, mm-hmm. on the freeway. And this is why, you know, my camera is set in New York. You know, that's... My camera's my camera. But he's not as typical because the automobile is really the the place of uh, where all the ratio, ratiocination gestates, whatever it is. You know, I never thought about that, but you're right. There's lots of scenes of, you know, thought while the guy's driving. It, it, it. Well, there's certain advantages to it to the writer, which is also... How can I give this guy a forum in which to do all of the math about the plot while getting him to the next place? And that brings me to the other question I had for you, was how prominent is the, the inner monologue in, in film noir? It, it's in some, it's not in some, especially with that movie we just played to track, Blade Runner, there was that whole controversy about should should that narration be in there or should it be out? You know, you see the director's cut. There's no narration. Using double indemnity mm-hmm. as the the template for all subsequent uh, film noir, obviously like the Philip Marlowe, all the PIs. Yeah. Uh, so in those cases, I would say, yeah, definitely. But in other cases, maybe not so much. Yeah. You know, um, we don't really get that interior monologue in, um, like, the big heat, as typical of film noir exercises any of these movies are. Uh, you don't get that in uh, Kiss Me Deadly, which is interesting not only because they take an established private eye and kind of take him out of his the universe that he inhabits in books. Mike Hammer is a New Yorker, but Kiss Me Deadly is set. Here. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, largely about a block from the Bradbury building. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you see Angel's Flight and Bunker Hill. And, yeah. and that's all in there. So, yeah, the, the, the city becomes a character. The interior monologue, where permissible, let's call it. And I think that's that's kind of the stereotype for film noir. You know, the, the gumshoe talking. You know, it was a Saturday and I was sitting at my desk thumbing through the want ads, blah, blah, blah. Well, I think what formalized that to the point of, you know, there are comedy parody records of it. Yes. Is Dragnet. <laughs> Dragnet, yes. You know, uh, Stan Freeberg had St. George and the Dragonet. Spike Jones. With, with Stan Freeberg had St. George and the Dragonet. Spike Jones had a Dragnet. And obviously, you know, the, the comedy shows of the time. Because it was so huge. All of those visual norms found themselves into all of the film noir of the world. Yes. The the Japanese movies are fashioned similar to French Hollywood, to England. You know, whereas the sci-fi is, you know, like Japanese sci-fi is giant, you know, giant, gi- giant lizards. <laughs> uh, Italian sci-fi is rocket ships. Yeah. American sci-fi, I'm talking during the similar period to film noir, 
stuff like It Conquered the World, which yes. is, you know, are we making contact with outer space and will outer space destroy us? Right. Then you have Twilight Zone, which is definitely uses a lot of film noir in its storytelling. Definitely. It's pool sharks and jockeys and uh, gangsters and slot machines. Well, speaking of stereotype, and I, I'm going to deviate us for a moment. This is still staying in film noir. I'm going to deviate us for a moment. Then we will come back. And we talked about this at the top of the last episode. And that is a movie I think is heavily underrated, which was Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Well, it's not underrated at my house. Mine either. It's one of those movies that Carl Reiner was a genius. I mean, he, he... he took, he made a film noir movie by cutting pieces of film noir sure. into the film. And it was really fantastic. For those of you that may not remember it, um, I don't think it was a box office hit. Um, no, it was. Uh, I don't think a lot of people got it, quite frankly. It was in the 80s, early 80s. And I it, think it was the follow up to The Jerk, even. Yes, I think it was. Which. It's sort of like following up Smokey and the Bandit with Life of Brian in terms of just, you know, like how how different are you going to make this thing from that thing? Right. It 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 was, and it was shot in black and white, and it was, Steve Martin was the gumshoe, and it was the it was very stereotypical, funny, uh, but uh, the brilliant, and I mean really brilliant editing in of these scenes from classic film noir uh i mean uh, oh my gosh betty davis uh ray Milland, all of these cats <laughs> yeah yeah Bo- bogart is yeah, yeah and marlo wear a tie marlo <laughs> and um and uh i remember reading an article about it where um carl reiner was talking about getting Nicholas rosa to do the music and he told him it was a, a comedy and it was almost like the, the Carol Burnett thing. You know, I yeah. don't do shtick. You know, he told him I don't do comedy. And he said, I don't want you to do it as comedy. I want you to do it as straight drama film noir. And the score is brilliant. And I would like well, to play the theme song me, from that. I, I, Robert Drasnan, you know, would, if you asked him about Miklos Rosig, oh, Miklos. Yeah. You know, like... Streisand, (laughs) Elvis, one name, name and, you know, uh, the only other person who I ever saw him just kind of look skyward Mm -hmm. at the mention of the name was Goldsmith. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Here is the opening theme song for um, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid by Miklos Rosa.
chilly and conversation seems pretty silly I feel so mean and right I'd rather have the blues than what I've got The room is dark and gloomy You don't know what you're doing to me The web has got me caught I'd rather have the blues than what I've got All night I walk the city Okay, that little uh, three-part set right there at the top of that was a comedy spoof on film noir. Um, that was Miklos Rosa's uh, uh, theme from Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. 
And then we moved into blues riff. You want to inter- introduce that? Yeah, one? riff blues riff from blues, the um, from the fifties Mike Hammer television show. And then after that, the uh, song known as the blues from Kiss Me Deadly, uh, aka I'd rather have the blues, which Nat King Cole recorded uh, for the opening of Kiss Me Deadly, which was a Hollywood adaptation of the Mickey Spillane book of the, of the same name. Uh, but AJ Bezzarides who wrote the screenplay thought that the book was garbage. So basically just threw out huge chunks of it and came up with a different story and, you know, a lot of Adam age intriguey type stuff, but there's a lot of downtown LA in it. You can actually see, um, the uh, the Gaylord Hotel in one yeah. scene, which is where the HMS Bounty, one of my favorite restaurants, I is. I love that place. Yeah, me too. And um, Angel's Flight yeah. is, is all over it. And that's just a block from the Bradbury Building, which is, again, Blade Runner. Yep. So you can kind of go relive a lot of cinematic... Um, Awfulness, really. <laughs> <laughs> Cinematic awfulness, yeah. Was, who was the guy in play? It was uh, William Sanderson. The, the yes. The the with the the engineer sort of, guy who yeah. who has the little. Creatures. I was going to say the I, I was going to say the puppet master, but that's a yeah. different thing entirely. Yeah, I saw him once at Pink's. Really? Yeah, he he used to be on the Newhart show. Yes, he, he was. was uh, he was Larry. Larry. And uh, you know it's. So at first you go like, oh, look, it's Larry. Oh, it's also that guy with the weird little figures yeah. around him. They're my friends. I yeah. made them. I made them. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's odd every now and then you will run across one of these people um, yeah. in a place where you don't expect them. And it was an interesting casting. He stands out. As odd, which which the whole film is like that. Everybody's a little odd. There's something a little off, and yeah, yeah. The whole thing looks like it, it as if they were leaning when they shot it, so you never get a sense that your feet are firmly on the ground. You're right, because yeah. when you think about it, a lot of the street life of future LA, as they painted painted it, doesn't happen on the ground. Yes, it's right. Sort of above, you know. It defies gravity, but not in a cool. There, there's no such thing as security in the universe that's painted in Blade Runner. And, and it's it's interesting now that you've said that. It's it reminds me that it's very non LA atmospheric because it's always cold and raining. It's always cold and raining, and so much of LA or our concept of LA is about how sprawling it is. Yes. And in Blade Runner, you don't get a... It's very claustrophobic. Claustrophobic. And there's lots of pieces of old L.A. in it, but they're all very decayed and, you know, water-damaged. It's 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 beautiful in that respect. Kind of that beauty of decay, which I, I, I thought was... It's dark and beautiful at the same time. Well, you've always been a lot more decadent than I've ever been, <laughs> huh? You know, when I got to Los Angeles, I didn't grow up in California. Yeah. You know, I grew up in Philadelphia. So I get to Los Angeles, usually riding around with either Ray Campy, you know, the 
the late Ray Campy was a great rockabilly singer who loved old movies. Or Dave Alvin, um, who was the guy who played guitar and wrote all the songs in the Blasters. And he is just such a Los Angeles historian. He's like, see that place over there? Yeah. Well, John Fonte, that's where the apartment is in Dago Wine or whatever. You know, yeah. like, so all these things are pointed out to me. But the buildings, when you walk up to them, whether it's the Neutra House that's in House on Haunted Hill or, you know, whatever you might want to name, they actually look pretty neutral in daylight. You're almost like, I don't want to say disappointed, but you're disarmed by them when you see them not in the context of a film. You're mm -hmm. like, I, I guess that is the side of the building that Harold Lloyd is hanging from in safety last, yeah. whatever it might be. You would think that would disappoint you, but instead it just did more to, to make me fascinated yeah. by what film does to um, modify our reality of the real place. Yeah. You know, I really thought that uh, everything I was going to need to know, I'd probably gotten from reading three Raymond Chandler novels and seeing Dragnet and no. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Okay. Let's do a set right here. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, we've been talking about things that are like film noir, like maybe mm -hmm. they came from TV or maybe they came from sci-fi. And it reminded me of, um, there was a steel guitar player um, named Alvino Ray. Yeah. And uh, Esquivel was actually a huge fan of um, really? Alvino Ray's. Yeah, yeah, that's why Esquivel uses steel guitars, because yeah. she really liked Alvino Ray. <laughs> and uh, his theme for a really crappy movie called The Bat is just as good as it gets. So let's play that. All right, here's The Bat, Alvino Ray.
Okay, you get to talk about those. <laughs> well, that last one was French Quarter from uh, Streetcar Named Desire. And when we're talking about crime jazz proper, Streetcar is, streetcar is really the first real modern jazz score. Uh, you know, And it was written by Alex North, who didn't really do too much more of this kind of thing afterwards. Like Spartacus, who's yeah. afraid of Virginia Woolf. I mean... Obviously, like the rejected score for 2001, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, quite the distinguished career. But for some reason, he never returned to that kind of sleazy, sultry cityscape that he perfected. I mean, it's like all of crime jazz, film noir music, whatever, sort of happens in the wake of Streetcar because it was so stylistically perfectly realized. I yeah. mean that his his contribution to that film is as revolutionary as Brando's. Yeah, you know, in, especially when you look at well, how imitated was it? Well, <laughs> right, pretty imitated. It, exactly. Um, like, right before we heard that, we heard uh, the opening batch of cues from "Man with the Golden Arm," which is, of course, you know, like. Sid Caesar parodied it, like on his show in the fifties. It's the most, it's the most recognizable, everything, of the genre, you know. And there, there's no PI in it. It's a drug addict trying to stay clean, and there's jazz musicians, and you know, eventually pushes a woman in a wheelchair down a flight of steps. So this is bad people doing bad things to other bad people. Other bad people, yes. Um. You know, when you, you think like, well, if I have to write something that sounds like film noir, that's that's as high on the, the short list of stylistic things you have to grab as would be um, Peter Gunn. Yeah. And then before that, I would say the, the, the composition that sets the stage for what's going to be this type of music and... That's Harlem Nocturne. Yes. And that's the Johnny Otis version, which is really, to me, like the imitated version. And the alto saxophone player is now a 95-year-old rabbi out in Corona, Rene Bloch. Uh, he's from East L.A. originally. Wow. But back then, he was a 17-year-old kid playing in a largely black music environment. Uh, in a band led by Johnny Otis, who was a Greek guy passing for black in a largely <laughs> black music environment. <laughs> and, of course, Rene Block went on to be the lead alto player in Pres Parado's band during what we could easily term Pres Parado's real reign of terror. Yeah. <laughs> and we opened with something that's from a bad sci-fi movie, but a lot of the people who were writing and playing on the music that we know as film noir music mm -hmm. were also playing on anything that was going on on a Hollywood studio scoring stage. And that was The Bat by Alvino Ray. And I just think that's, uh, I forget where I even heard that, but I just, uh, you know. Yeah. And it's one of those things that when you find a 45 of it, it's usually about 50 cents. Yeah. It's for some reason not very collectible. Wow. Well, when I was young and starting to collect all this stuff, nobody wanted a Henry Mancini record or the soundtrack from Johnny Staccato. Even soundtrack collectors weren't 
they weren't interested. In they it. weren't interested. They were more interested in the more symphonic stuff. Yeah. So you could find a copy of the soundtrack for "I Want to Live" for not very much mm. money. The Mancini records were in every thrift store, right alongside the Little Drummer Boy and the First Family, <laughs> <laughs> and so were Al, uh, Arthur Lyman and Martin Denny, right? Yeah, and Ema Sumac. So this was how I became acquainted with a lot. Like, huh? It's got a guy with a fedora and a gun. Yeah, it's worth a dime. Yeah. And that was that was how I got into collecting a lot of this stuff when you still could. Yeah. So the the days of being able to collect things cheaply, uh, they're long gone. I agree. Yeah. The same with uh, Exotica. When I when I got into it, I I would say I got in on the tail end. You could go to a thrift store or not thrift store, but um, like a swap meet, and you could rummage through the records and. I I found the stereo version, uh, a stereo pressing, almost mint, of Voodoo for two dollars. The one with the girl on the cover, the one with all the little exclamation points. It, no, that no, that was stereo exotique, right? Which, percussion percussion per, exotique. Percussion yeah. exotique. No, um, it was the one with the girl, and I bought it for the cover because I didn't know this album. I had just started getting into Exotica, and that cover was amazing and i bought i brought it home and put it on and it was one of those like you just struck it rich because every track was amazing oh and the cover was amazing and it was like what is this record and if you got the mayfair pressing of it it was on gold vinyl and it was like nice vinyl i didn't yeah i i i got the stereo copy which i found out later was a little rare um and it was um what what was that label? Tops. Tops. That was it. It was Tops. Yeah, I found out later that there was a a, a colored vinyl. Person. Yeah, on Mayfair. Mayfair. That's it. Yeah, it's similarly. There were all these knockoff. Uh, there's a Peter Gunn knockoff on the Crown label, and it's all the same musicians who played on the legit Peter <laughs> Gunn. And it's just like coming in and you know. Almost to a one. Yeah. Uh, there actually there are lots of Peter Gunn knockoffs, and I actually collect these these records. Uh, there's one called Impact by Buddy, Buddy Morrow. Should Should we play one or two of those? You want uh, Yeah. Let's uh, let, Let's go into the knockoffs. Okay. Let's do the knockoffs.
that was the La Playa Sextet. I got interested in them when I was a teenager just because very there were very few, uh, you know, East Coast Latin groups, Afro-Cuban derived groups mm-hmm. that had guitar in them. Yeah. You know, there's really, when you think of salsa and Afro-Cuban music, you really think of the piano playing that ding, 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 you know, yeah, a Sun Montuno. So to have a group with a lot of guitar in it, Mm-hmm. And um, I always wanted to do an arrangement of that tune. And then right when I moved to Los Angeles, I was brought here by a guy who, was, who had just finished a, a big band album. And not only did the SOB record that, <laughs> um, but he did a better job on it than I ever could have. And the whole album was just kind of the high watermark for what became sort of the uh, the lounge revival albums. And that was Joey Altruda's uh, Cocktails with Joey record, mm-hmm. which is, you know, still, that's kind of still the record to beat. And one of the first things we bonded over was that we both liked La Playa because there was guitar in it. <laughs> and I think he just bought the single, honestly, because it had... It, one side was Samba Bardo and the other side was Mambo Bardo. <laughs> and if you're a Betty Page kind of a consumer, uh, a 45 dedicated entirely to Bridget Bardo yeah. m- might be up your street, as right. the British say. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so Joey recorded it. I wish I'd brought the record with me um, and did a, a really wonderful job. Uh, before that, we heard uh, Kai Winding. I think that's how you pronounce it. Kai Winding, Kai Winding. Uh, great jazz trombone player uh, who made a lot of records with J.J. Johnson. Mm-hmm. And uh, his version of the theme from Experiment in Terror yeah. by Henry Mancini. And uh, the thing we opened with was uh, from a record called Impact. Uh, Orchestra under the direction of Buddy Morrow. And uh, it's a theme for a show I've never seen called Waterfront. And I really only know it from this record. And it's the record's got a great cover. Um, yes, it's very big cool. red letters that say impact. And it looks like somebody has shot a BB through a windshield. <laughs> um, and, it, and there's a little tag on the top. You know, it, if you know old RCA Victor LPs, Above the RCA logo, there's some little slogan like uh, Tito Puente plays jazz. That's a Puente. And it's true. Um, and this one says uh, a hi-fi must. A hi-fi must. <laughs> and it certainly is. It's beautifully recorded. Um, I think it was probably recorded. Yeah, Webster Hall, which is where Tito Puente recorded Dance Mania, which in addition to being arguably the great Latin album of its period. That's a great album. Yeah, and if if you don't think that's the greatest Latin album of all time, maybe you like Acid by Ray Barreto, which is about 10 years later and is considered by many to be the greatest Latin record of a generation, also recorded at Webster Hall. So, you know, a pretty good place for uh, making sure your fi is high. <laughs> <laughs> So okay. that that was that little set. Uh, okay. 
We're we're sort of catching up on the loose ends, I guess, because in the the first portion of this show, we are we actually are just about out of time. I want to say uh, thank you, Skip, for coming. As always, it's it's wonderful hanging out with you, and we hang out more than just what you're hearing. Here. Yeah, we 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 have actually, you know. We, we've socialized without the provocation of <laughs> podcasting or anything of the type. Right on. And it's just always, you know, like, it's always a pleasure to sort of be the man who came to dinner, or in this case, brunch, <laughs> and right. then play a bunch of records and make a bunch of music together. That's right. We had steak and eggs before this, and then... We, at the we, safari room. At the safari room, and we're drinking our coffee and uh, having a wonderful time. Skip, it was wonderful having you, and I'm going to say this. You have introduced me here to a lot of tunes I did not know, so this is cool, and I and I hope you guys enjoyed this because I know a lot of you out there who listen to the show really like the Bond shows and the spy jazz that we've done, and this is one that I had we talked about doing for a while, and I wanted to do it for a while because it's, it's so much fun. So... Uh, um, so this is just a couple of middle-aged guys who learned about Peter Gunn from the junior high jazz band. Right, it's true. Signing off from the seedy underbelly of the San Fernando Valley. Yes, and we're not in the quiet village this time, but as always... There's, want- the, there's, this, there's a lot of kids and dogs and stuff running around here. This village is not very quiet. No, it is but it's definitely not. Actually, always a joy for me to be around well, I we love having you, and uh, just remember, you can visit the Quiet Village at any time, which is a lot quieter than my house. So I love the <laughs> Quiet Village by going to digitiki.com. You can get all the tracks that we played here and on all past shows. You can, you can stream all the shows, and you can go to the Quiet Village of your mind uh, with Quiet Village Radio 24 Seven we'll also put a link up so you can order the record. Yes, we definitely want to do that. It is the Hollywood Film Noirchestra. It's like noir and orchestra put together. Noir, noirchestra. Noirchestra. <laughs> noirchestra, right. <laughs> and the album is Dark Passages, which I believe you might have a hard time finding the first pressing because it is almost sold out, if not sold out. But by the time you're hearing this, the second pressing will be on its way. Yes, second pressing is coming. So it's it's and it's getting a lot of real positive press, and it's a great album. And I got. To I will play say on a this. Yeah, I, I will <laughs> say this too. Despite the positive press, the one person who ex- who told me outright that this was not among my most enjoyable work was my mom. Your mom. <laughs> well, you know, my son's getting into criminal behavior with this music. <laughs> right. It's the seedier underbelly of Skip Heller here. <laughs> okay. Until next time, everyone. Like I always say, don't just say aloha. Live aloha. Leave the world a little bit better when you go to bed as you did when you found it. Until next time. It's been an honor to be here among you once again. Aloha, Skip. 